You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Um, The Bible reading today will be taken from Genesis 1. This is 1 to 31, and I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, which implies that all other Bibles are not the standard ones. Um, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse, and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and gathering the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. There will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our own, in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he God saw all that he made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. I'm so uh, delighted to be with you this weekend. Thank you so much for the privilege of being part of your weekend away and the privilege of um, speaking from God's Word. One or two of you already said you're looking forward to going deep into God's Word. Um, well, you're going to be very disappointed because we're not going to go deep. We're going to go wide into God's Word. Instead of digging deeply into a few passages, we're just going to do the whole Bible. So um, <laughs> get ready. Uh, all 66 books are in front of us. We're going to go for it. And... Uh, that means we better pray. <laughs> Why don't we pray and then start? Lord God, thank you so much that we can be here together. And we pray that this weekend would build friendships and relationships, that it would be a time of fun and enjoyment together, enjoying your world and all the lovely things you give us. But above all, we pray that we would enjoy you, our God, and enjoy your word and we pray that you would feed us and nourish our souls and draw us closer to yourself. We know that none of this will happen unless your Holy Spirit is at work. We pray that your Spirit would move in our hearts, opening us to receive your word and to respond to it. And we pray that your Spirit would help us see Jesus, our beautiful Saviour. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, that is the theme in front of us, living scripture's story. Over the years, I've flown into a bunch of different countries. Maybe you have as well. Um, I've been to England, America, had a day in Mexico, India. I only had a day in Singapore. Some of you will be very disappointed the length of time I had in Singapore. Uh, when I go into a country, um, there are these lovely people who welcome you. Um, customs officials, and they ask questions, which I always find very sweet of them, really. They want to know uh, some stuff about me. And so they ask, you know, why I'm visiting and how long I'm going to stay and what I do for a job. So all these, uh, all these nice, polite questions. But of course, at the end of that, they know something about me, but they don't know me. Uh, you can know facts about someone or something, 
But to really know someone, they need to be able to tell you stories. If those officials that uh, so kindly welcomed me into their country wanted to know me, they'd need to, to give me time to tell stories about where I grew up and what I'm passionate about and what I love doing and tell stories about my family and my work and my life. It's as we tell stories that we get to know someone. This weekend, um, many of you I don't know at all. And when we talk, hopefully we'll, we'll tell some stories about who we are in order to get to know each other. And in the same way, it's the stories of the Bible that help us really understand not only the Bible, but understand God. Uh, if we want to get to know people, we get to know them from their stories. And if we want to get to know God, we get to know him from his story. Uh, the Bible is full of stories. About two-thirds of the Bible is narrative, the genre of narrative. You could say story, narrative, is God's favorite genre. It's his favorite way of revealing himself. But the Bible is not just a collection of lots of individual stories, each of which has a moral. That's so often how um, stories work. Uh, there's, there's a nice story and it has a moral lesson. And if you understand the story, then you're meant to apply the lesson to your life to become a better person. Uh, I don't know if you know of Aesop's fables. When I was a kid, um, we would sit by the, uh, the open fire um, in Christchurch in cold winter's night. And my dad would read uh, from Aesop's fables. And the most famous of Aesop's fables is the story of the hare and the tortoise. And you, you know that, hopefully you know that story. And there's a, there's a moral, isn't there? Um, like slow and steady wins the day. Uh, and many people read the Bible like that. Lots of different individual stories, almost like fables. Each with a moral lesson. Often like, be strong, be courageous, be brave like David. Be courageous like Daniel. Have faith like Peter. We read it as lots of different stories, each with a moral to make us a better person. But that is not how the Bible works. The Bible is not a collection of stories. The Bible is one story, one great story. The entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that is from the Garden, the Garden of Eden, to the Garden City in Revelation 22. From creation to recreation, the entire narrative of Scripture is one story. And that one story of the Bible is not mainly moral lessons for you to become a better person. It gives us something far better than a bunch of moral lessons. It's about something far bigger and far more wonderful. So what is it? Uh, I want us to, to begin by thinking about the Bible's one great story. We'll think about what that story does. 
And then we'll embark on looking at six stages in the story of the Bible, six great acts in the drama of redemption. Let's begin with the Bible's one great story. I think there are four brilliant things that the one entire story of the Bible does. The first thing is that the Bible's story enables us to know God. That's the main thing, not moral lessons, not you doing this, that, and the other thing. The main thing about the Bible's one overarching narrative is that it's a narrative that will reveal God. The Bible's one story is his story to reveal who he is. Now, have a look at this uh, statement. This is from the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, one of the great statements of faith from the, um, uh, from, the, from the church in the 17th century. Look at what it says there. God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. All-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, every pre- everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. That's quite a statement, isn't it? How do we know that? How do we know that list of things about God? We, we know it from the one story of Scripture. And I think it's fascinating that God has given us a massive story rather than a definition. We can distill the story into a statement like that, and there's, there's a, a wonderful place for confessions and catechisms that distill and articulate and categorize and summarize. But for some reason, not everyone loves a good old catechism. Uh, I don't know why, but not everyone is just you know, totally passionate about Westminster Confession of Faith. But everyone loves a story. And God, in his wisdom, has given knowledge of himself through narrative. There are, of course, other genres in Scripture as well. There's lore and poetry. There's apocalypse. There's wisdom. But stories dominate. And if you think about it, uh, there are stories of floods and famines, of fights and fortunes. There are stories of old men and widows and fools and lovers. There are stories of rich people and poor people. Outcasts, runaways. Uh, Do you know loads of Bible stories? Here's your chance. 30 seconds, less than 30 seconds. Turn to your neighbor and tell them your favorite Bible story. All right. Hopefully you quickly landed on a good Bible story. This is the thing, though. Whatever story you named, God is the hero of that story. 
If it's a story about David, God is the hero. If it's a story about Daniel, God is the hero. If it's a story about Paul, God is the hero. Every time you read a Bible story, you should be asking, what's the saying about God? Here's another good question to ask every time. What is God doing here? Because in every story of the Bible, God is doing something. What's God like? What is God doing? How is God the hero of the story? You know, the classic, David and Goliath. David is not the hero. God is the hero. What is God doing? What is God like? What's God up to in that story? The whole story of the Bible is meant to show us more and more, story after story, more and more of who God is and what he is like. Here's the next thing, though. The Bible story also enables us to know ourselves. In fact, we only understand ourselves truly when we understand the Bible story. Uh, John Calvin, the great reformer, said that there are two great pursuits in theology. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Those Those are the two most important areas of knowledge you can possibly have. Look at what he says. Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But then notice what he says next. It is certain that a man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. He's pointing out that we don't truly, we don't accurately understand who we are until we understand who God is and see ourselves in relation to God. Our culture, of course, tells us to to understand ourselves by looking within. Our culture is pressing on us the importance of being authentic, of being true to yourself, be true to your feelings, be true to your passions and your desires, whatever they are. Uh, True identity, true meaning, true fulfillment and purpose in life is found by looking in and being true to yourself. And our culture is particularly saying it's essential to be true to your your sexuality and your gender. Our culture has promoted those as core to our inner identity, and our identity is an inner thing um, found in searching out our desires and passions and being true to them, whatever they are. The Bible, though, never recommends that. The Bible never recommends forming identity by looking inside. It always recommends forming identity by something outside of ourselves. Actually, not just anything outside of ourselves, God. (laughs) Forming our identity in relation to him and his story. The Bible, I think, is incredibly wise and incredibly kind in that. Because it means it 
wants to give us an identity that transcends our desires and passions and feelings. And if you're anything like me, your, your desires and passions and feelings change. They move around. Mine move from day to day. I can start off feeling awful, then I have this compulsive desire for something, and then I move on. It might be satisfied or not satisfied. I'm, I'm continually variable, in flux. And if your identity is found within yourself and your feelings and your passions are being true to yourself, then actually it's a very insecure identity. And if meaning in life is, is found only by being true to yourself, then what's, what's our culture's message if you're not doing very well and if you're not high-performing and if you're not finding meaning? You know, where, where's the fault? <laughs> you. And so the Bible kindly lifts us out of ourselves and says, no, you will find your true identity and real purpose, real hope, when you look outside of your own story into the story of God. The Bible actually gives us grounds, a foundation for security and certainty in who we are and what our life is all about. But we can go further. Okay, that was my, um, that was my deeply contemplative picture. As you look within yourself to find who you are. But what the Bible does as it lifts us out of ourselves and into thinking about God's story is it rewrites the stories of our lives. Uh, we're not simply meant to know God's story and enjoy it or admire it or criticize it. We're meant to live in it. We become a part of God's story. Suppose you go to a uh, magnificent stage play, go to some great performance, and it's just magical and uh, transports you into another world and you're blown away by the, the set design and the music and the costuming and it's just your dream to have gone to this thing. Uh, you go home and you dream about it um, and you love it and you want to see it again and again. That's one thing. But it's altogether another thing if after the performance you're mingling in the foyer and the director somehow finds his way to you and taps you on the shoulder and says, tomorrow night... I want you up on stage. Woo! That's, that's insane. Like, that doesn't happen, does it? Uh, that would be another, another experience altogether. He says to you, of course, uh, you're not going to be star of the show, but you're going to be on stage. And, you know, that's exactly what the Bible says to us. It's as though God comes and he taps you and me on the shoulder and says... I want you up on stage. I want you in the story. You're not going to be the star of the show. The lead role was appointed a long time ago. Jesus got the role, and he has no understudies. It's not you. But God invites all of us to be part of this story that he is telling in Scripture. And that means our lives, when we come to know Jesus, our lives get caught up into a much bigger story than they are otherwise a part of. Maybe you were part of a small story, your own story. Um, for many people, it goes like this. It's the story of um, hopefully having a fun childhood, 
finishing school, getting an amazing ATAR, getting into a good uni course, uh, getting good grades, getting a good job, getting a dual job so that you can um, have plenty of money, get married, have kids, travel, uh, stress out, uh, work harder and harder, make more money, uh, eventually retire, uh, do more travel, because now you've got the money and the time to travel, go into aged care, die, push daisies forever. I don't want to be too cynical, but that is what many people are living for. That is their story. And God invites us out of that story into a far bigger and better one. A story that's no longer going to be about us and our comfort and our grades and our success and our pay rate. A story where he's going to give us a new mission and a new focus. And it actually won't matter whether you're astoundingly brilliant or just jolly average. It won't matter whether you're beautiful or like me. It won't matter whether you're, well, a Kiwi or an Asian or an American even. Like, it won't matter. It, it won't matter whether you're male or female. It won't matter whether you're professional or working class. God will draw you in to a different storyline. You could be sweeping streets and your life will have purpose. You could be changing nappies for a few years. You could be auditing books. I actually wanted to make some parallels between changing nappies and auditing books, but I thought that might not be helpful. They're a bit similar. Um, it doesn't matter what you do. When you know Jesus, he draws you into another storyline. And whether your life's magnificent or mundane, it has purpose and meaning. The Bible is not a spectator sport. The Bible is a story that we become a part of. I, um, I saw an ad the other day. I was actually at the gym, as you could tell. And um, uh, an ad came up on the flashing screen. And it was an ad for the Australian Defence Force. Maybe you've seen it. The, the one line of the caption was, live a story worth telling. Live a story worth telling. And, you know, it's got a picture of people getting into the Defence Force and doing dramatic, important stuff on the world stage. Live a story worth telling. And I thought, that's exactly what God says to us. Live a story worth telling. You live a story worth telling when your story is tied up with his, tied up with what he's doing in the Bible. So, there's a fourth thing that then happens. The Bible's story is designed to renew our souls day by day. It, it shows us who God is. It shows us who we are. It invites us into his story. And then as we participate in his story... He 
renews us and restores us and refreshes us day by day. Don't you find that the stories of this world are often draining? There are so many grim and sad stories, aren't there? Uh, My wife and I, like many people, started to give up on watching the news every night during COVID. It just became, it's, it's like it just becomes more and more depressing. Nah, we still do a dose of news, but I don't need it every day. It's always the same. It's pretty discouraging. The stories of this world are often bleak. And it's not just the world out there that's like that. Even the stories of, of other people's lives can be wearying, if we're honest. Friends share with us a broken heart. Church members go through deep trials. There are tensions at work that wear us down. And maybe maybe our own heart isn't a great story. We're anxious, depressed, uncertain, fearful. After a day of listening to the world's stories, other people's stories, our own story, you can feel pretty flattened. And God then invites us to go back and read another part of his story. And somehow that has a way of revitalizing us and renewing us. It's not that all the stories in the Bible are happy stories. There's some shocking stuff in the Bible. And yet the story as a whole is a story that God has designed to renew us and refresh us within. And I hope that we're going to see that this weekend. We're going to look at six stages in the Bible's story. Often the Bible's story is told in four stages. You may uh, have heard before of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. But this weekend, instead of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or new creation, we've got two bonus stages as well. Uh, Two free extras. Uh, Basically, because a lot happened between the fall and the coming of Jesus, and a lot happens between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And so I think it's really helpful to think of the whole story of the Bible in terms of these six stages. We could um, uh, give an an upgrade to the words. These are the the designations I want us to run with as we think about how the story renews and refreshes our soul. Beauty, chaos, relationship, Love, purpose, and hope. Those are the six stages of the Bible story that we're going to think about this weekend. And as well as upgrading the words, we even get an upgrade of the graphics. Isn't that magnificent? Uh, We are on an upward curve here. We're going to think about how each of these six stages of the Bible story renews our souls. It renews our souls as we are drawn into God's story as that shows us more and more of who we are and more of who he is, and it rewrites the stories of our lives. All right, 
We've thought about how the Bible works, if you like, how the story of the Bible works. Let's embark on the first act in the drama of redemption. Uh, We're just going to do this one act uh, this afternoon. There's a couple more acts in the second talk and another one in the third and a couple more in the fourth. That's where we're heading over the weekend. But act one is beauty. We read Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one begins with God. It shouldn't surprise us. We've just said the whole story is about God. In the beginning, God, it says. And the first thing we learn about God is that he is creative. He created out of nothing. The Latin phrase which theologians like to throw around is ex nihilo, out of nothing. By his powerful word, he spoke and things were formed and created just through the sheer power and authority of his word. He spoke and created, as we saw before, sun and moon and stars and trees and, and animals and then fashioned people. Uh, I have trouble creating something out of something. <laughs> Who can comprehend the power of being able to create something out of nothing by the sheer power and authority of your voice? How cool would that be? Let there be an essay. And behold, there was an essay. And it was HD. (laughs) Let there be a kitchen renovation. And behold, there was a kitchen renovation. And it was very good. Oh, magnificent. That's what God did. He spoke and things came into being. What he created was vast. We read he created the heavens and the earth, and then he filled them. Heavens and earth, that is, he created the entire universe, which scientists now tell us is some 100 to 200 billion galaxies. That's that's insanely large. Each of which has hundreds of billions of stars, and stars aren't exactly little. The sun is quite hot, and it's not one of the bigger ones around. To to be honest, what God created is is quite excessive. It's It's just over the top, isn't it? And I think the vastness of creation is a statement that God is making about his own immensity. If if the Bible is the story of God, he starts off by saying. Not only am I supremely powerful, but I am immense, vast. But here's the thing. We won't merely be drawn to worship God because of his greatness. In fact, when something is great, it might drive us away rather than draw us near. Think of a prowling lion. That's a great beast and terrifying. I'm not drawn near to a prowling lion. Jonathan Edwards said, Our greatest need is not to see God's greatness, but God's goodness. 
if you know that that lion is Aslan out of Narnia, it's altogether a different story, isn't it? You know that that powerful beast is good. And God is not only vast and immense and all-powerful, but he is good. We'll be drawn to God, not simply by knowing that he's a great God, but by knowing he's a good God. And here's the thing I particularly want to stress. He is a beautiful God. God points to his own beauty in the beauty of creation. Creation is beautiful because God is beautiful. The days of creation speak of design and symmetry and order. The the way God filled the earth with trees and flowers and animals and fish and birds and beasts speak of endless variety, insane creativity. He placed the first human beings in a garden, not in a detention centre. When he gave them food to sustain their bodies, he gave them exotic fruits and beautiful uh, b- beautiful food that Genesis 2 tells us was pleasing to the eye, enticing. He didn't give them tablets, supplements. He could have. He could have just produced the mega supplement and said, look, let's just take two of these each day, morning and night. There was morning, there was evening, there was another tablet. It was very good. He, he could have done that, but he didn't. God is not merely utilitarian. He, he tells Adam and Eve to reproduce. But he doesn't give them a test tube in a laboratory. You, you can do it in a test tube in a laboratory. I can't, but some people can. But the way God designs it is he designs sexual intimacy to be beautiful and pleasurable and wonderfully attractive. You see what God is doing? He is making a world of pleasure, a world of delight. God is not a stingy God. He's not a mean God. And God intends that we look at creation and, 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 and see what he's made and say, wow, isn't that beautiful? And we do that innately, don't we? We look at a sunset and say, oh, that's so beautiful. I was driving on the, the, the hills Coming here, it's just its beautiful, so lush and green and pretty. We're meant to look at creation and say, that's beautiful. Sometimes uh, my wife and I holiday in, in Hall's Gap up in the Grampians. And I don't know if you've been there, but you know the wildlife there is just magnificent. You have these crazy animals, screeching cockatoos, wallabies that are just a really bizarre design when you think about it. Uh, the, the outrageous laugh of kookaburras, emus, this big, odd, flightless bird. I kind of get the feeling that when God made Australian animals, he was just having a fun day. <laughs> and God looked at all that he'd made, and he says, that's good. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's very good. I look at what I make and I say, 
It's okay. I think I can get away with it. I hope they don't look too closely. Everything I make is flawed. Everything God made was very good. As people made in God's image, we then are hardwired for beauty. I said God writes us into his story. He, he made us part of his story right from the very beginning. And part of that means he has put in our hearts an insatiable desire for beauty. Think of the human obsession with beautiful people and beautiful places. Just endless magazines and TV shows about those two things alone. Beautiful faces, beautiful places, and beautiful everything else. Beautiful food, beautiful houses, beautiful gardens, beautiful this, that, and the other thing. And that's good. We're meant to enjoy beauty. Enjoy creation. Take time to... Look and smell and see. Enjoy warm sunshine and autumn colours and spring growth. Enjoy the, the wonder of human beings because humans were created as the pinnacle of creation. They're like God's masterpiece. There's nothing like a human being. Enjoy human creativity. God, making us his own image, has made people remarkably creative. We can't make stuff out of nothing, but we can make stuff out of stuff. And some people make good stuff. Enjoy beautiful architecture, wonderful music. Enjoy good coffee. One of God's great gifts to mankind. Enjoy... Photography. Enjoy artworks. Enjoy great literature. God has made people in his own image and they produce amazing things. But it's not enough to enjoy the beauty of creation. The beauty of creation is intended to point us to the beauty of God. He's using physical beauty to point us to spiritual beauty. You know the idea of, of moral and spiritual beauty. Certainly we're used to appreciating physical beauty, but I think all of us understand the idea of there being beautiful actions, beautiful values, a little while ago, uh, my wife and I had a night out in Melbourne, and so I thought I'd take her out for a meal, maybe somewhere a little bit special. So we were queuing up at Macca's in Swanston Street, <laughs> and, um, uh, and a homeless guy came in. And it was one of those awkward moments where everyone starts scrolling their phone and keeping their head down. But there was this um, young woman, I guess she was 20 or so, and she just quietly went up to this homeless guy and she, she took him across to the touch screen and she tapped in an order, she swiped a card, took the ticket and gave it to him 
And he went and he stood in the queue with the rest of us. And my wife nudged me and said, isn't that beautiful? It was. Love is beautiful. Compassion is beautiful. Justice is beautiful. Doing what is right is beautiful. And God has made a beautiful world so that we think beauty and look at him and see that he is beautiful. 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about the inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's real beauty. Psalm 96, worship the Lord in the splendor, the beauty of his holiness. His beauty is his absolute purity. God is untainted by anything dodgy or yucky or ordinary or deceitful or distasteful. He's absolutely pure. And absolute purity is beautiful, isn't it? Here's here's the thing. The Garden of Eden wasn't just a beautiful place. The Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. It was a dwelling place. It was a meeting place. It was a place where the people God had made met with God and served God. It was like a temple. And later on, actually, the tabernacle and the temple are modelled on and reflect a whole lot of aspects of the Garden of Eden. We don't have time to go into that, but there's a magnificent connection between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle and the temple. It was a meeting place with God. And there in the garden, in the midst of a beautiful place, the people God had made met with a beautiful God and had fellowship with him. And our souls still crave that. We are made to delight in the beauty of God's holiness, his love, his righteousness, his justice, his truthfulness. Look at Psalm 27, verse 4. I've asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Look at it. Gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Gazing, not glancing. Taking a Long, steady look at who God is. Dane Ortland says, The beauty of God is not captured with a camera, but enjoyed with the heart. And so the beauty of creation is always meant to make us look upward to God himself and see what he's made as but a Small reflection of who he is, an absolutely beautiful God. But how do we see the beauty of God? How do we see the beauty of the invisible God? How do we come to know the holiness and the beauty of God? Well, the Bible story 
leads up to the day when God would become flesh. When this beautiful God became a man and lived on earth just like you and I do. And the beauty of God is supremely revealed at that moment. The beauty of God, uh, sorry, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of Jesus is not in his looks. It actually says in Isaiah 53, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus is the most beautiful person who ever walked this earth, but it wasn't in his looks. For every one of us who doesn't have amazing looks, that's very encouraging. He was, without looks, the most beautiful person ever. And the gospel stories, and we'll come to the gospel tomorrow, the next day, tomorrow I think. The gospel stories show us beautiful actions from Jesus. Wasn't it beautiful when a leper said to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Statement of real faith in Jesus' power to cleanse. And Jesus says, I am. Be clean. That's so beautiful. If you'd been a leper and you're an outcast and no one wanted anything to do with you and you had to go around saying, leper, leper, keep away from me, I'm unclean and you can't go to the temple and you can't worship God because you have a disease that renders you spiritually and religiously unclean, what a beautiful thing when Jesus says, I'm willing and Jesus touches you and Jesus cleanses you and Jesus gives you a life again. Man, that's beautiful, isn't it? What a beautiful thing when Jesus goes to the temple and he sees a widow, probably an old lady, who's, um, I'm getting too excited, uh, putting two little copper coins into the treasury box. Peanuts, nothing. And Jesus says, I tell you, this woman's put in more than everyone else. That's beautiful. Beautiful when he sees her heart. He sees her generosity. He doesn't see the external display. So beautiful what Jesus says. Isn't it beautiful when Jesus says to a thief dying on the cross next to him, when Jesus himself is in excruciating agony, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Everything about Jesus' actions in the gospel is beautiful. And for us, I think there's nothing more beautiful than knowing that though other people might judge you and reject you and find you wanting, Jesus loves you completely. Not at all based on your performance, just based on his abundant love. And he fully accepts you. And he embraces you in his family. And he treats you as if you've never, ever done anything wrong. He treats you as if you are as righteous and as beautiful as he is. Well, friends, I think much of the time we find ourselves... Where am I up to? And clicking? Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Yes. Our souls yearn for, the, for this true beauty. Um, I think much of the time we find ourselves uh, 
chasing around fake beauty, plastic beauty, synthetic beauty. We feed our souls on spiritual junk food. We chase the beauty of pictures on Facebook. We watch endless Netflix miniseries. We try to find joy in our job or joy in our house or joy in our holiday or joy in a flat white. And flat is right. Because it can't do anything for your soul. It might, might give you a momentary pleasure. So fleeting. Our souls need more. They need God. We were made for God and we are only satisfied in him. As we go to God, feed on him, gaze on his holiness, fill our souls with who he is, something amazing happens. We find that his beauty is transformative. When I look at a beautiful person, I don't become more beautiful. It's a real pity. I've tried it, but it doesn't work. But when you gaze on the beauty of the Lord, it's as if his beauty starts to rub off on us. The more we dwell on him, the more time we spend with him, the more we fill our hearts with him and his story and who he is, the more he changes and transforms us. If you hang out with God a lot, you'll find that you become more loving. Maybe without even trying to be more loving. Because you've been with a loving God. Hang out with God a lot. And you might find you start to be a whole lot more generous than you ever wanted to be. Because you're changed by the beauty of his generosity. And you'll become more patient and more gentle and more concerned about justice. More ready to do what's right no matter what other people think. Well, I must stop. We have here a beauty package. Uh, this is a brilliant beauty package. You didn't know you were going to get this. It's a freebie. Um, it's unlike anything. You'll get a day spa, better than any um, th therapy, you know, beauty therapy clinic will give you. And like I say, it's free, which is magnificent, I think. Here's the beauty package. A beautiful world created by a beautiful God who wired us, hardwired us to crave beauty and who made himself known to us in a beautiful saviour who renews us and makes us more beautiful within. Isn't that a great package? And so we're thinking about the Bible's story. We're only in Act 1, but here's the first of six things I want to give you for your soul this weekend. Feed your soul on the beauty of God. Feed your soul on the beauty of God. You might have to do two things in order to do that. 
One is you might have to dial down your exposure to fake beauty. And you might have to dial up your exposure to God's beauty. Do that for one thing. Uh, do I have this here? No, no, no. That's it. Um, do that by actually enjoying creation. Um, maybe, maybe you're a city person. I'm sure many of you are. You've got a city job. You work long hours. It's busy. But even in a busy city life, carve out time to look at what God made. Stop. Just along the way, stop and feel the warmth of the sun and look at the beauty of a flower. Pause for two minutes in your crazy day to watch the sunset or rise. While you're waiting somewhere, don't just scroll. Look. <laughs> Look at people. Look at the people God made. Think about the enormous variety of the people God has made. Think about the capacity that he's given to each one made in his image. And then, having looked at what God has made, lift your heart and praise God. And here's, here's the way you can push it a step further. Dwell then on some aspect of the beauty of God. You could even, if you wanted, take an aspect of the beauty of God to dwell on each day. Each day, just choose one facet of the beauty of God and make it your focus. You might dwell on his grace or his love or his mercy or his kindness or his honesty, his power, his justice, his presence. And I put it to you, friends, as you gaze less at yourself, looking less inside and looking less at fake beauty and look more at God and more at Jesus, his beauty will be transformative and you will become a more beautiful person. Well, there you are. That's stage one. We've only got five stages to go. Uh, five more acts. But this first act is so good for our soul, isn't it? Feed your soul on the beauty of God. Can I pray? Lord God, we have seen that you are beautiful. Spiritually and morally beautiful. And you made a beautiful world so that we would see your beauty. And you made us to crave beauty and to be satisfied in you above all else. And so please draw our souls away from things that are fake and synthetic and draw us to yourself that we might gaze on the splendor of your holiness and be satisfied in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.